Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I know a lot of complicated people. My guest today is David Cohen. David is a divinely balanced embodiment of wisdom, humility, and humor. Much like the editorial cartoons he draws for Asheville's premier daily paper, The Citizen Times. Typical of the artistically inclined, David has multiple jobs. And of course, he's a musician. They won't let you live here unless you play some sort of instrument. If someone were to draw a caricature of the quintessential Ashevillian, he would probably look a lot like David. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to express my gratitude to all of you who are listening. Your letters, your comments, and your donations are deeply appreciated. Thank you for being so supportive. When I launched this podcast, I had no idea if anyone other than my mother would actually listen. It turns out I have more mothers than I thought. So keep tuning in and keep telling other people. If you haven't already done so, please rate and review us on iTunes. This is the number one way you can help us grow our audience. Let the world know what you think about learning to fail. You'd be amazed at how much they value your opinion. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com. Every episode has its own page and we love reading your comments. While you're there, please visit our donate and Amazon pages. Anything you can give will only help us grow. But as always, the most helpful thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and encourage others to do the same. The more of us out there learning to fail, the sooner we'll all succeed. Let's turn our attention now to my conversation with David. I think you'll really enjoy this glimpse into the mind of a man who has dedicated his life to a disappearing art form. There just aren't a lot of people making cartoons anymore. They've been replaced by memes. Well, first of all, David, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. I haven't seen you. Looking at your hair, I'm like, how many years has it been since I've seen you? Because your hair was not this long. No. Two years, maybe? Yeah. It's got to be at least two. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if Georgia was still living here when you were coming here to do some illustrations for Sula Said. Like, that was the last time I saw you in person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still want to do that Sula Said project. I just, um, it's one of many. It's a good idea. Uh yeah, it's just uh, for some whatever reason, I wasn't capturing her. I'd like to try again, but I, you know, I'd like to come and take pictures of her myself, and work specifically from those pictures. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, she's you know she's old enough now that she's lost some of that angelic quality. <laughs> I was reading the notes on her door. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, yeah, keep out or you'll become you'll my die. <laughs> But then there's like hearts, you know, it's okay. Totally that, makes it, that makes it okay. It was this sort of like <laughs> mixture of sweet and adolescent. Then she's certainly pre-adolescent, yeah. but I mean, it's like this really funny mix for her of, of understanding her own space, definitely wanting to mark her territory, but also still being filled with sugar and spice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember w- what she was like two or three years ago when I was here before. And I imagine that she's got uh, a really good preteen attitude working. Oh my God, dude. It's crazy. 
Her mom and I are always saying she's, you know, she's nine going on 19. I mean, and she watches, she doesn't watch a lot of TV, but when she does watch, she watches a lot of shows right now where the kids are sort of in junior high or high school. Mm -hmm. So they kind of do have attitudes and they're, she's adopted those attitudes and we're just like, uh, -uh, no, (laughs) you know, we will send you straight back to animated (laughs) my little pony. If you keep this behavior up. So at least she started watching things that I can watch with her. My favorite show is Girl Meets World. It's this really cute show about, I mean, I think now she's in high school. She's 14 and she's got a best friend and it's a good family and they have, you know, real issues that come up, but they're ultimately nice to each other. And it's funny enough. Like Mm. it's not idiotic humor Uh that as an adult, I can watch it and be like, yeah, I I can stomach an episode or two. Right. Well, there was a time when I was helping to raise a couple of girls and I watched uh, I Carly a lot, and uh, before that, I mean, even going further back, it was like Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> yeah, episodes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and just being a cartoonist, I was able to you know look at them with appreciation or a rating level uh, kept my interest. When, and it was like, oh well, you know, he's cool. He's watching this with me. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, like. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you in here, apart from just, you know, having a relationship with you, liking you and thinking it would be cool is, you know, I've started doing comedy in the last couple of years and I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out, but I was after a while, after starting comedy, I started seeing your cartoons. What do you call them? So I don't use the wrong cartoons. cartoons. Okay. Uh, I started seeing your cartoons differently. And I was like, David's kind of a stand-up comedian. It's like, he's a comedian. It's not standing up, but he's, it's, each one is a joke. Like, there's a premise, and it's usually in the picture. Mm-hmm. And then the punchline is in the writing a lot of the time. And, and I was like, wow, he's a comedian. I got to get him on here because I'm mostly about talking to comedians. I agree with you on your assessment of that. It's, uh, it, it's very much a joke. It's very much a one-liner. Uh, and I don't know how... It, you know, facial expressions in your job are kind of when you draw a cartoon that does ha- has no caption and it's all in a visual thing. Right. <clears throat> um, but yeah, it's timing. It's when you have, we normally read from left to right. So you want the joke, even if it's a one panel to proceed from left to right. So as the person views it and goes across with their eye scan, the punchline hits them at the right time. Oh my goodness. I never would have thought of that. And when you have uh, a strip comic panels, that flow is even more important. Sure. Well, that one seems more obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we can, like if you're up for it, maybe you can dissect and explain to us how like a cartoon is made and what goes into it. Cause I hadn't really thought about it, but now that you even just scratch the surface of explaining it, I kind of want to know more. Mm-hmm. So uh, but when I think of the panels, I think, well, that's obvious. They've got four frames, let's say, or eight frames typically. And, uh, well, I guess it's been so long since I've read the funny pages, but that's my memory is it's usually one or two lines and it's right. four to eight or something. Anyway, it's pretty clear that they're setting it up and they're going to pay it off in the last frame. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing single frame stuff, which is most of what I've seen you do, mm-hmm. if not exclusively, but at least most, uh, I never thought about that, that, that you're taking into account where they're going to start looking and where they're going to f- 
finished looking in a natural flow anyway, mm -hmm. and that you need the joke to follow that. One recommend, recommendation I would make to you would be to uh, Google Patrick Oliphant. He's like the premier editorial cartoonist of the last 50 years. Okay. And he's a master at what I'm talking about, of grabbing your eye and leading you where he wants you to go in the drawing to the yeah. the money shot right at the end. Oh, okay. I will do that. Can you spell his name? Yes. O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T. Okay. And his first name again? Patrick. Patrick. Pat. Okay. Uh, and that's all the really good cartoonists have that under control. They, they know that that's what, how it's got to work. And at this point for me, it's not even um, something I think about. I just kind of go that way. I know that that's how it has to go. It's just sort of comes out of me now. I would, yeah, I would assume you've been doing it long enough. You're sort yeah. of unconsciously competent at it. Yeah. Hopefully. hopefully yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On my good days. On your good days. You know, well, here's the thing. Like, I think you put out a, an extremely high percentage of quality work. Like I think your stuff is really good. I mean, I, I very rarely look at it and think, well, that's stupid. I mean, some days I'll look at them and be like, <laughs> that's really funny. Other days I'm like, okay, that's funny. You know, but it, I never look at them like idiot, you know, but that's, I, I, I can't say that for a lot of. It's funny artists, because uh, you know. I can say that. Well, <laughs> I'll look at your own work. I'll go, God, that is really stupid. Cohen. Yeah. And will you publish it anyway? No. And that's something that's changed for me over the years. It's like when I was younger, it would be like, I put so much damn work into this thing. I'm just going to finish it and I'm going to put it out there. And now, now, oh, that's not working. I'll just throw it away. Okay. I'll start over. How hard is that? It's a lot easier than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I would imagine. I mean, in any kind of writing, that's sort of the editing process. It's the same way with a joke. You know, you think it's funny and then, uh, you put it out there and you don't get the laughs you think it should, but you know, you still think it's funny. So I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. Oh joke. yeah. I mean, it's, it's rare unless, you know, once in a while I'll write a joke in the moment on stage mm -hmm. with the crowd. Now, a lot of times that won't be funny any other time except that moment. And other times it will make its way into my repertoire. I was even telling someone about one of them today where I actually wrote it on stage it was just something I said off the cuff as part of an existing bit, and now it exists, and it's the big payoff in that bit. Like mm -hmm. it hit really hard the first time I said it, and it was one of those things I could, I could keep with me. But usually that's not the case. You know, usually, I mean, I labor over something and I labor over it and I write it and rewrite it and rewrite it. But at this point, I really enjoy that process. Like I have a set right now. I don't know if you happen to watch um, my recent video I put on Facebook, but I, uh, I went to comedy school and at the end of the six weeks on the seventh week, you do a big performance and they packed the house with 300 people. I mean, it was in, <laughs> you'll never ever have a crowd that is that warm again. And I didn't, the only thing I can say for me is I live two hours away from the school. I didn't have a single person in that room who mm. knew who I was mm. or cared except they were generally supportive, mm -hmm. but they were there to support all the other nine people who went before me. And the one guy who went after and, but I did this set that I've been working on, working on, working on. And it just absolutely killed. Like, I mean, you should watch it. It's I, I'm like 
every time I watch it, I smile and I laugh and I just can't believe that I pulled that off, you know, and, and I can say that because there are plenty of nights that that isn't what happens. <laughs> like, so it's, there's, I can say, well, there's one night it happened, you know, it's not the only time I've had a decent night on stage, but it's by far the best. And, um, so I worked really hard and really tightened down all these bits and I kind of thought, well, they're finished, but I'm still doing them because like this weekend I'm performing at a real club, another comedy zone, and this time in Greenville. Mm -hmm. And I'm opening for a big comic. And so, you know, I have to do my best work. And my best work is this set. So I continue to work with it. And I'm like, I just want it to be even better, even funnier. What line needs to move so that I can get that much more power out of it? You know, and that's the thing. Like with comedy, you're never done writing it. The teacher, my first conversation with him, he said, what's your best joke? You know, is it as good as it can be? You know, really kind of full of attitude too, you know, and he basically was saying, you know, there's no way your what you think is your best joke is done. And, and now I really feel like I have a better understanding of what he means by that. Cause even these jokes that killed that night, they can be better. And I've even done them better since mm -hmm. and worse. <laughs> you know, you try a few things and they don't <laughs> always pan out. Sometimes you ruin something good anyway. So I really do. Uh, have an appreciation for that need and also writing things that I think are hilarious and they just do not hmm. connect to the audience and learning why is really the art form. Mm -hmm. You know, why isn't your audience liking it? Uh, and I've, I have found out the reason, the reason is if I write a joke, that's just a little too where women are a little too much, the butt of the joke that's not going to fly. Like you have to be balanced and it has to be a little bit more in favor of criticizing men. <laughs> like, because, because the women will laugh if you criticize the man and the man will laugh because men can laugh at each other when it's a man telling the joke, you know, but if you tell a joke at the women's expense and she doesn't think it's funny, he can't laugh at it. So the room is not laughing, you know, even if the guys, if it was all guys, they might laugh a little. Right. So, so I've been learning that cause I'm a dude and I'm dealing with women all the time. And you know, that's provides some of my material for sure. <laughs> so, all right. So tell me a little bit about the process. Like how do you, first of all, how long have you been, have you been doing it professionally and not professionally for that matter? Not professionally. I started what, about the fourth or fifth grade. Okay. Um, I did a TEDx talk recently and I kind of put together a little history of uh, how I came to be a cartoonist. And so I, I went back through the archives and found some things. I found a comic strip that I had done about the fourth or fifth grade. And it was uh, insanely bad. Oh, really? But there was the, the the seeds of something to come. Even at that time, I knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, so there was that. Then in high school, you know, I, I did a lot of cartooning instead of um, studying. studying. Yeah. <laughs> and then in college, too. Um, and I kind of reached uh, along the same time. I was trying to pursue a music as well. Right. And I reached this um, plateau of not being able to figure out which I should concentrate on. And I came to a decision uh, that I should be able to do both of them. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, my first published cartoon was probably um, in the high school uh, newspaper. 
but I'm sure that I, when you say professional, I mean, is it, you get paid for well, the Well, I think college newspaper counts. I mean, you know, obviously you're probably not getting paid for it, but you're sort of the guy that they've chosen to be the cartoonist for the college newspaper. So that's, that's like, I would say that's step one, you know, my uncle, um, through some contacts that he had, uh, was able to send my cartoons from high school off to different syndicates. Uh, mainly it was, he was thinking that I would get some advice. Right. And, uh, only one editor wrote me back and wrote me back a couple of times, uh, basically telling me what I couldn't do as opposed to what he thought I should do. But was it, that helpful? Um, it kind of set me on the path of hating to be rejected. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might as well get that, uh, learn get that, that early. Early. Yeah. yeah. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it's been over 50 years that I've been drawing cartoons. And when did you finally get your first paying gig? I got a lot of spot paying gigs. Uh, you know, one cartoon here, one cartoon there doing illustrations as well right i was i must have been in my, my 20s mid late 20s something like that and and is that your sole source of income now oh no no so is that possible can you can it be your sole source of income who do you have to be to be a living off your comics i have to be uh someone who can attack the business side of it it's just so much not what I can do that I'm you know, totally willing to pay someone to do all that for me. Uh, so that's what I would uh, have to do to do that. But I make a living doing that and music, and I also have a day job. What's your day job? I work at a Whole Foods. Okay. I haven't been there in so long. I didn't know if you still worked there. I know I used to run into you there every now and then. Yeah. So, well, that's cool. At least you get your outrageously expensive groceries for 20% off or something, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the company store, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> chances are if you work there, you shop there, and it's really is a whole paycheck. Yeah, you look at my statement, and uh, it's yeah, Whole Foods, Whole Foods, Whole Foods, Whole Foods. Oh, man, that's brutal. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, that's like when you get a 20% off discount at Bed Bath & Beyond. Now it's the same price as Target. <laughs> but, you know, that's the kind of food that I eat, so it's... Uh, it's very uh, good place for me to get my groceries. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, because of the discount, but also yeah. it's because it's what I like to eat. Yeah, right. No, I mean, it's I'm I mostly organic food plus insurance and uh, you know four hundred one k. Do they take good care of you? Uh, yeah. No, oh, that's good. They do. All right. So you started. So who do you? Who's your main? Where do you publish now? I'm the editorial cartoonist for the Asheville Citizen Times, which is a Gannett newspaper. It's the daily here in Asheville, city of almost 90,000 people in the mountains of Western North Carolina, where we both live. Um, and I've had cartoons published in college textbooks. I've done uh, cartoon artwork for internationally known jazz artists. Um, my national themed cartoons get sent to other Gannett newspapers around the country. Okay, so they're so you, published elsewhere. And then, do they pay you more when that happens? Is that like being on a commercial that goes? Well, it, no. Okay. <laughs> I, don't. Uh, yeah. I had to sign the papers. 
<laughs> the owns ideas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you on a salary? No, I'm a freelancer, but I've been doing a couple of cartoons a week for them for the last almost 11 years. So how come you only do two? Doesn't it, they publish every day, right? They do publish every day because uh, syndicated cartoons are much cheaper. And um, the days of staff cartoonists are pretty numbered. There used to be over 300 in this country, staff cartoonists. And now there's probably 70. But still like 300. I mean, the idea that you're applying for a job and there's only 300 openings for that job, like in the whole country. Come on, die already. No, actually, you know, when someone gets bought out, you know, they get, they say, we're laying you off for an unnecessary expense. Um, they don't replace that person. So that's why the numbers are going down. Right. And I, I know some staff cartoonists still, uh, Dwayne Powell, uh, who's the, this great cartoonist down in Raleigh, um, we're friends and I've talked to him about his time as a, a staff cartoonist. He lives in a really nice house, has really a couple of nice cars. And he told me what he makes a year, what he was making a year. And I was like, damn. So the height, the heyday was, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago when cartoonists were like, it's that great Klebon cartoon where this guy's walking along. It just looks like a total nerd. He's got these beautiful chorus girls on each arm and someone is walking in front of him, kicking people. And he's saying, out of the way, a cartoonist is coming. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I imagine like, are there, so are there like cartoonist conventions and stuff like that? And do you go to them? Do you present? Are you a, yes. Uh, do you have a table where you sell your cartoons? No, no, how not. Does, so how like does that, that work? What it's, is one of those events? Paint me a picture. It's a, I'm a, a member of the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists. Is that a guild? Is that like a union? It, it's just sort of like a big club. Okay. All right. <laughs> we have officers and, but they put together a convention every year. And I was a member for a long time, and then I stopped being a member. And then I saw that the convention this year, last year, was going to be in Durham. And I could drive to that. So I rejoined and uh, signed up to go to this convention, my first one, because they've always, always been on the West Coast. Hmm. Is that where most of the cartoonists are? No, but that's where they all want to go. All oh, right. No one wants to go to <laughs> Mississippi for Minnesota. For so the big annual uh, meeting. I went down there and just had a blast. I got to meet all of these cartoonists whose work I've been following for years, Pulitzer Prize winners, and um, as I assumed, genuinely nice guys. Oh, good. And women. And uh, they knew me and my work because of social media. We are all basically friends on Facebook right. and on Instagram. And that's where we, we put up our work as well as, you know, having it published uh, in print. So that was a blast. And um, next year, I think I saw it it's somewhere not close. I'd have to fly, but I, I probably will try to do it again. No, I think it you was, should. It was man. so much fun. Yeah, you totally should. It was very affirming. Yeah, I mean, especially that they know you and like the, your heroes know who you are. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And I, they were workshops. And uh, one cool thing was uh, we had four Pulitzer Prize winners on stage 
and there was a moderator who was asking them questions, and they were showing their cartoons up on the huge screen behind them. This right. was held at Duke University. Okay. And they said, we're going to pass out a bunch of pads. Just draw cartoons while you're sitting in the audience and pass them down to Matt, Matt Worker, the cartoonist for Politico, right. and he'll put them up on the overhead projector behind us. So uh, I'm just sitting there, and I, I do this cartoon. And it was... Uh, real Donald Trump. It was his hashtag for Twitter. And I drew a little cartoon of him in his box, and right. then, I, then the real Donald Trump. And then I put hashtag my life matters. And this was at the height of the Black Life Matters right. uh, movement. So I passed him down the hill, you know, and uh, Matt put it up on there and it got a really big laugh. Yeah, yeah, I bet. To where all the cartoonists turned around to look at it and then they started laughing too. And these, was, these were, like I said before, my idols. So that was just, uh, yeah, that's I wish my uncle was still alive to have seen that. <laughs> Why your uncle? Was he the guy who? He was the guy you? that was sending my cartoons around oh, right, to the sending, syndicates. Okay, sending the syndicates, right. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, so th those are fun. Conventions are, no, you don't sell anything. Um, you might sell um, if you brought books, but you wouldn't be there selling it yourself you might come afterwards and sign some of them but it was like a little store kind of thing okay you'd have there'd be people for that yeah i think one of the things that's fascinating to me like i i'm in the yoga business so i do a lot of yoga conferences not as many as i used to but we would go and we'd set up and we think we're especially because yoga we all think we're so special you know <laughs> and we'd set up this thing and we'd build this environment it'd be like this amazing you know energy and like group consciousness blah, 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 you know, and, and it would feel really meaningful to us, you know, and then on Sunday at two o'clock when it's over, everyone just starts crashing it, packing boxes. You hear nothing but tape guns and pipe and drape being taken down. And it's just, you know, this like death of a, of a nation, you know, that existed <laughs> temporarily, you know, but it was this world, this little universe that was there for a while and felt very blissful and peaceful. And then they can't wait to get us out of there because they're setting up for some other thing mm -hmm. that means absolutely as little to them as ours did. Like their job is just, we're pipe and drape guys. Like sure. every couple days we come in here and tear down pipe and drape and put up new pipe and drape. Like that's all it is to them. And I just found that fascinating. Like it's, and you know, when, the, when those people show up, that's their universe and they think it's really important. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it is, I mean, you know, in their, in their context. That's what they're getting paid for. Yeah. So I just think it's neat that there's whatever you're into, especially with the internet now, you know, no matter how weird you are and the more focused and weird you are, you can find a, <laughs> a focused group of weirdos like you and you can all meet up. It's, it was described to me. Uh, I was talking on the internet with this, uh, former editor, really sharp guy. And he said, it's gotta be an obsession. It can't be uh, just something if, well, I mean, it can be uh, like a pastime, but if you really want to do it, you got to be at the place where you can't not do it. Right. You have to do it. It's maybe it's how you st prevent yourself from going crazy or hurting somebody or yourself, but you just got to do it. And it certainly has always been that way for me. I can't conceive of not doing cartoons maybe physically i'll get to a point where i can't 
and then I'll be, have to accept it. But a lot of cartoonists continue to draw, you know, while they still can, 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, I would think that that's a career, unlike football, that you can do <laughs> well into your senior years, you know. that, yeah. And that's a great thing about it. I mean, mm -hmm. it's true for comedy, too, if, if people hire you to, you know, if, yeah. if you're still interesting, if you're still, if you can stay relevant. And the music stuff that I'm doing, too, is like, if I can, you know, find someone to carry my drums around. Right. Uh, you know, wheel me over to the stage. <laughs> You know, one of the comedians that I've become friends with recently, uh, she's in her late 60s or something, really hilarious. And one of the things she looks for in a comedian like me, who she's going to sort of take around and give chances to perform, is someone who can carry her bags. <laughs> you know? Like that is a prerequisite. And and I was like, I'm happy to carry your bags wherever you go. You know, like, I mean, I also just really adore her as a person. So I would totally hang out with her. She's super funny, very smart. And uh, we did a podcast together between performances and, and she was just amazing, you know, and she sat down on the couch. She's like, I don't understand what podcasts are for. What is this Facebook? Like she just right into it. You know, <laughs> luckily I was already rolling. Like she just, she just dove in and started complaining right away about podcasts. And by the end, you know, had a great experience and was really happy we did it, <laughs> but it was very, very funny. And anyway, her main, her main thing is not how funny you are, not anything else. Just can you carry her bags? Like that's, that's what it takes to get on tour with her. <laughs> so we know that you have a level of success with the Asheville Citizen Times. Are there any horror stories in coming up as a cartoonist? I always kind of like those, <laughs> um, you know, and kind of lessons you learned along the way and just, you know, just that kind of thing. Like, did any of that go down for you? Well, the lessons, the lessons that I learned, the biggest lesson I learned was that it doesn't matter if I think it's funny, if no one else thinks it's funny. Right. And that was humbling because I thought I was pretty funny. That sort of leads into the whole thing of, oh, I'm just going to erase this and start over. Right. You know, that evolution happened by being able to confront the fact that, oh, this one is not working. Uh, that was the biggest lesson. And I've had some, you know, some, some jobs where you just can't get it for, uh, the person, you know, you feel bad, but uh, either they're being <laughs> unreasonable or you're just can't do what they want you to do. And that's happened a few times. Um, Are your cartoons always funny? I mean, is it is is funny a necessary component of every one or can it just be politically meaningful or? Good question. Uh, I also I draw editorial cartoons as well as humorous cartoons. Right. So. Unfortunately, the public has become accustomed to the idea that even an editorial cartoon has to be a joke, oh. which editors and bean counters, corporate owners of newspaper chains now think that is, um, that's got to be the case. If you don't do it that way, then, you know, we're just going to get rid of you or we'll use uh, very cheap syndicated cartoons that just draw the same stuff. Um, what was the, well, I wanted to know, I mean, that was the idea, like, uh, cause you said you'd have to oh, throw right. one away if it's not funny. So I'm curious, like, do they always have to be funny? No, uh, they have to work, but it doesn't mean that it has to be funny, but being funny, it's like, can go, it goes the other way. Um, editorial cartoons, you're just trying to make a point. 
you're trying to s state an opinion. It's like writing an editorial only visually. Humorous cartoon has got to it's got to be a joke. It's got to be funny. It helps if you have a little bit of humor in there. Usually with editorial cartoons, a lot of it is juxtaposing two things that you don't think should go together, but it it, it makes it work. Right. Uh, the contrast uh, makes it work. I try to draw on a couple of levels to where you can look at it more than once and see something you haven't seen before. One of my main influences for that, uh, when I was a kid, my English grandparents, my dad's grandparents, would send us comic books uh, from this British cartoonist named uh, Giles. And he was uh, a daily cartoonist in, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the big paper in London. Back in that time, he had to draw and then like ride a motorcycle you know, or have someone, a messenger, take it into the paper like 100 miles away or something. Oh, wow. It was really a uh, different, different world. Um, and his drawings were large format and were incredible at this time, you know, no, no color. They were just incredibly shaded with uh, this stuff called um, duotone and also letraset, which is like uh, shading. Letraset is like adhesive shading you would put down on there and you'd cut out to make uh, shadows. And it would be in dot matrix form uh, for reproduction uh, in a newspaper right. for printing. And then duotone is this special board that comes with two chemicals. And one chemical you brush on, it makes half of cross-hatching come up. And if you use the other chemical, it makes the other half come up. So you have cross-hatching, but you paint it on so you can paint forms with it. Oh. They don't make it anymore, but you can do all that in Photoshop wow. now. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it was great at the time. And so he had these, I don't know, they were cartoons like this big. You can't see this on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the books, and they were just full of details. It was about this British middle-class family. And there were, must have been like eight or 10 people in the family with a bunch of little kids and grandma and the aunt who was always sick. And they had this little little backyard in this little right. uh, neighborhood in London. Today, I can still go back through those books and see different things uh, in his cartoons. So that was, uh, I like to put a second level in. Um, and I don't very often use other people's ideas, but if someone gives me an idea and it's really good, I'll put their initials or their name hidden somewhere in the cartoon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I got that idea from uh, that great caricaturist, Al Hirschfeld, who used to put it, his daughter's name, Nina, in uh, his drawings. And he'd be a little number uh, at the bottom of the drawing next to his signature that said how many Ninas were in the drawing. And his style was that he could hide them in hair and in uh, decorations in clothing. Um, so that's where I got that idea. No, from. that's cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I know. I got, uh, kind of reminds me of in high school, a friend of mine, for our site class, we all did a project and he did a presentation on subliminal advertising and it was insane. <laughs> and, you know, he pointed out all this stuff and then I was at a party and I was talking to this girl and I was telling her all about subliminal advertising and she didn't believe me. And so I picked up a magazine and I had her, you know, like pick any ad, you know, and she picked out this ad and this guy's like, you know, 
putting on a suit and the woman's holding his tie and the tie is a naked woman on the tie, you know, <laughs> and she was that blew her away, you know, and then we started looking. You could see all this stuff everywhere. Like if there's arm hair, they airbrush the word sex into the arm hair. And and uh, if if it's a cigarette ad, people who drink or smoke have a death wish. So there's lots of skeletons and skulls and bones and stuff like that <laughs> subliminally in all those ads. And once you know it's there and you look for it, you can totally find that stuff. And so this was great party material for me. You know, I could, um, I mean, I, I, if I was just a little craftier with it, I could have used it more to my advantage. But <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Like this woman absolutely didn't believe me. And then when she saw the naked lady on the tie, that sealed it. Like that was, that was incredible. That's not even that subtle. You know, <laughs> no. And there, and there was this one poster that when I was in my, when I was in high school and college, I went to boarding school. So this is like the eighties, late mid well, boarding school in the early to mid eighties and college late eighties. Every girl had, or some girls in every place had this one poster of this guy. who was like the Soloflex guy or something like that. I forget what the ad was. Anyway, uh, they had airbrushed a penis into his abs a giant penis. And I was like, and so I would ask these girls, you know, what do you, why do you have this? She's like, Oh, he's just so beautiful. And you know, what do you like about it? I just want to touch him. I'm like, where do you want to touch him? <laughs> and invariably they would rub up and down on the penis that they didn't know was there. Like, and I said, there's a penis right there. You know, it was unbelievable. So yeah, it was really, that was by far the best. Uh, that was the best presentation and, and probably the only thing I remember from that psych class. <laughs> So the thing of the guy, you know, uh, sort of hiding his daughter's name in there, it just that reminds me of that. And that's very cool that he puts the number mm -hmm. so that, like, there's how many sort of where's Waldo's that you should look for, you know, like how yeah. many times is his daughter's name there? And was that because, did he just do that, you know, because it was a fun thing out of love for his daughter? I, I think so. Okay, it wasn't like, you know, in your case, you were saying you do it if someone gives you the idea. Yeah, right. His daughter didn't fuel him with, maybe she was his muse. Maybe so. My daughter's all over my comedy. Mm, I mean, sure. just all over it. And, and really the best stuff is either about my mother or my daughter, you know, it's <laughs> just as stereotypical as it can be as far as not the jokes themselves, but, but just the fact that the subject like, matter. Yeah. Just that those provide <laughs> so much material. And now my dog, I have like a solid three minutes on this new dog. I just got who you met when you got here. Mm -hmm. um, I just adopted her. She's eight and and she's a pretty great dog. She's really cute, and everyone has questions about her. She's a very unusual breed, very unusual looking. Uh, Is it the Portuguese water dog? Well, you know, the only re – yeah, she's not, but people ask that question mm -hmm. because the Obama's got the Portuguese water dogs. Mm -hmm. She's an Italian hunting dog, so she is a water dog. Mm. But she's a Lagotto Romagnolo is the breed, and it's like the oldest pure breed on the planet. It's like 600 years old. Wow. And and it's and she's pure. Like people who have this breed do not mix them at all. And do you take her to the water? Does she like to swim? She likes to swim. She doesn't like to swim as much as as much as I would think. Like she runs in the water and she comes out. But I just got her in December. I haven't had a chance to take her in the summer. Mm -hmm. But I definitely will. I want to see what ha what she does. Mm -hmm. But you know, she's uh, these dogs are very 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 carefully bred. And this particular dog was not carefully bred. It was um, a guy bought one of these puppies from Australia, had it shipped over. Some other woman had a puppy. I don't know where she got it from. They wanted to make puppies for themselves. So they bred their two dogs together, but not necessarily doing all the like 
research and genealogy and making sure that it was the best thing for mm. the breed. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I have this dog who's pretty great, but you know, she's got some issues. Like she's, she's prettier than she is smart and they're a smart breed. Uh, but she's super stubborn and that might be true for the breed. I don't know how typical she is for this breed, but, but you know, she likes to make her own decisions. And she makes very bad decisions <laughs> and, and regularly, you know, but she's, she's getting with the program, but it's, it's right now we're doing pretty good, but we had a rough couple of months in the beginning, you know, uh, but she has this foot fetish, which I discovered the first night, you know, she will lick your feet forever <laughs> and, and just like, and it's just crazy. And so I have this whole thing in my routine about it. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, of course I compare that to, I'm like, why did I get a dog? You know, maybe I wanted a girlfriend, you know, and like, so it's, it's all there. It all shows up and it ties into my daughter. I made it so that, you know, my daughter, it was her idea to get the dog and, um, it's all there. It's like, it's just so fun to watch my life show up, you know? So how much of your personal world, cause you, you do a lot of editorial political stuff. So how much of your personal world informs your cartooning? I'd have to say a hundred percent. Okay. I mean, it's all, they're all, it's all coming from me. Um, except for the aforementioned, uh, ideas I might crib from somebody else. But, um, now I can't really think of how I would separate. Uh, it's, it's just me. Well, it's all your worldview. Yes. And that people, that's my answer. When people say, how do you come up with those ideas? You know, where does where do they come from? And I'm like, it's like, it's just how I see the world. It's like a plumber looks at uh, a plumbing problem, a plumbing problem, and goes, "Well, okay, I know what to do." Uh, it's just how he sees that world. Right. So I can't say it any better than it's like, I can't say it. <laughs> I can't say it's just me. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I was just curious if like, I mean, I, I definitely get that, you know, who you are and how you see the world is going to show up in every one of these things. Mm -hmm. But it seems like at least most of the ones I see on Facebook, they're pretty current eventy. You know, that you're usually talking about an issue. Well, that's that's what the that's the whole impetus of editorial cartooning. That's what you do. You're right. You know, it's like now. Uh, one example of the the current nature of it is obituary cartoons you know someone dies someone famous dies and it most editorial cartoonists feel like they have to draw an obituary cartoon i myself abhor them and have only drawn one in my whole career and i hope i don't ever draw another one who was it it was don knotts Okay. Uh, and, and was that, you wanted to do that? or I really to wanted it? to do oh, okay. that. Okay. And what was the cartoon? What did it say? What did it, what was the picture and what did it say? Well, he was uh, standing at the pearly gates uh -huh. and he was reaching over to one of the pillars because that's where the key was on a hook. <laughs> uh -huh. Like in the, the jail in Mayberry. Right, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was it. Okay. What, just looking at him from the back as he was uh, getting ready to go in. Uh, but, uh, that's what the whole idea of editorial cartooning is okay something happens and before the night is over i'm already seeing editorial cartoons about that thing that happened that day mm. you know online right it's uh, fast now it's got to be it happens it's really very fast, fast yeah very fast 
And yeah. then you, then you, uh, you got to hope that you don't draw what somebody else was drawing. Right. That idea. Yeah. They call it a, uh, it's the name of a game. Uh, when three or more cartoonists draw the same idea, like on when 9-11 happened, there were like umpteen number of Statue of Liberty cartoons. Oh. Uh, um, crying, you know, right. that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know the name for that, but it's when everybody sort of has the same idea. At once. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of cartoonists say their Bible is don't draw the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, right. Because everybody else is drawing that. Possibly. You know, that's the same thing in comedy. Like I was just uh, one of these podcasts I did was with a friend of mine named David Castro, who's a pretty successful film and TV writer, mostly TV. And and he did stand up originally. And I was making a documentary with him about a fellow comedian friend of his named Bobby Slayton. And so that's how David and I really kind of gelled our relationship was around that project. And we were in here talking and I asked him, you know, just like, what would be your advice to me as a comic? And he said, you need to write the second joke. <laughs> you know, the first joke is the one that everybody would think of. And mm -hmm. you're allowed to say that one. Mm -hmm. But the second one is where, you know, you shine. Like if you can write second jokes in third jokes that nobody would think of, that's when you really become a comedian. Hmm. And, and that's when you become someone that people will remember that they'll quote. And that's really what you just said, you know, never draw the first thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the first joke. I have to admit that a lot of times I will start drawing the first idea that has come to my mind. A lot of times I sit and just stare at the page for a good amount of time going stuff over stuff in my head. So it's not like technically the first idea, but more than ever, I'm changing in the middle of starting to draw that to where it morphs and it goes to something hopefully better. Right. Uh, so I guess that would be a second, a second joke. Is it a very, uh, I mean, you mentioned that like when you met some of your heroes and some of your fellow comics at the convention, that it was a really positive experience. Everyone was really nice and stuff like that. Like the comedy world, I might meet some comedians that are nice, but it's a cutthroat world. Uh -huh. Is cartooning a cutthroat world like that? Is I, I don't think so. Not like that. Because uh, we're all in danger of being, you know, extinct. Right. Uh, no one's job is secure. Like I say, those... Uh, I met Pulitzer Prize winners who can't, you know, can't, can't find work. a job. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's that. Uh, and if you've got a, a steady job, chances are no one's going to get it if they get rid of you because they're just not doing that. Right. Oh, I see. So that, so it doesn't undercutting somebody else or whatever. doesn't, it doesn't have, doesn't mean you're going to get very the job. Often, yeah, no. yeah. 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 Just get rid of the job. It's hard to think of, uh, the one I can think of was uh, Scott Stantis went from the Birmingham paper up to the Chicago paper after uh, uh, Dick Locker and maybe Jeff McNally uh, stopped. That's the last transfer I can think of um, for a, like a staff job like that. Uh, and that's been years. Um, you know, we all seem like a pretty collegial bunch. Yeah. Uh, everybody likes to sit around and drink and, um, and just laugh. Uh, that was some of the coolest stuff was we stayed in this hotel in Durham that was also an art gallery. 
was really an amazing place. And we would gather in the restaurant downstairs after a lecture or something. And basically, we would just crack each other up. Uh, now I'm, not much Perfect. Of a, I'm not much of a drinker, but uh, <laughs> I tried to hang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not much of a drinker either. People think they're funnier when they drink, but they're less funny when they drink. Like, Unless you're drunker than them. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. Well, then, yeah, whoever's the least drunk is still funny by comparison. But, yeah, it's, I mean, I always think people think it loosens them up in a positive way, but it usually doesn't. It just... Now, here's an interesting thing. I tried stand-up. Okay. Yeah. When, here or? In Asheville. Okay. And it was probably 30 years ago. Oh, wow. There was a restaurant downtown called Jared's, and it was up in above the uh, Bloomin' Art Flower Shop, right across the street from uh, the library downtown on Haywood Street. Okay. The owners, the Satzes, lived on the third floor in this really swank penthouse. They were wealthy, and they had a, they had a club on the second floor and a restaurant on the first floor. And the club was called 29 Steps, I think. Okay. Or 27 Steps. And they knew me... And uh, I just, I suggested trying it. So I wrote a half hour's worth of jokes and um, did it, I think, four times. But it was, you know. Half hour's a long time. It was a long time. I mean, most people do five minutes and they're, you know, wasted. You know, it's like. (laughs) Well, I had no idea. Yeah. I I wasn't going to ask people to come up there for five minutes because I was the only, only thing going. So. Um, I practiced it and, you know, had it memorized and, uh, it was all my friends. So there right. w- it wasn't a very good, uh, barometer of whether it was actually funny or not. Did they laugh? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? But I mean, if your friends don't laugh, then it's, that also tells you something. <laughs> right. So tell me what you think about this. This all is right. how I opened the show. I, um, uh, I had the bartender put a, a ghetto blaster on a stool out in front and, um, he walked off stage after pressing the play button and I had recorded on a tape earlier. I said, hi, this is David. Um, you're probably wondering where I am. I'm in the bathroom throwing up right now because I'm really <laughs> nervous. Um, so I've recorded a joke for you. <laughs> I like the premise. <laughs> and I started this joke and it was, it was some really nasty joke about uh, a hamster and <laughs> someone's ass. <laughs> and right before the punchline, I ran out and cut it off and like picked up the blaster and was like, I told you not to tell that joke. <laughs> and then I proceeded. Yeah. And I think that's good. Yeah. I think that's it, funny. It, it was original anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, the only thing I would leave out was that you're throwing up in the bathroom. Like I would be like a little late or something like that, you know, like, oh, okay, yeah. you know what I mean? Cause, cause you don't want to let on that you're nervous. You want to seem well, fully be, confident, that could, but that could be part of the act. Like, like a Don Knotts, you know, uh, just sort of the nervous guy. Yeah, but it's true. But he wasn't nervous because he was on camera or nervous because he's on stage. No, he was, he was his act. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was. So that could, that could have been my act that I was really nervous and maybe I could have worked that into more jokes. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Sort of an Arnold Stang. Yeah. But I love the idea. Of... I mean, I think that, I think it's hilarious. Like people come to see stand up, and they're just listening to like a ghetto blaster, especially cause that's just, 
that in and of itself. Well, 30 years ago. Yeah, that was, was the thing. I remember getting a ghetto blaster for my bar mitzvah. Like it was, it was all I wanted. It was I made everybody chip in and get me a ghetto blaster. I picked it out and everything. And and I remember, you know, people, yeah, carrying them on their shoulders and like huge too, right? Yeah, right. So uh, so that was a real thing back then. So I think I think that's very funny. And I love the idea that like, um, I love the idea that you start your show and you're not there. And I like the punchline where you kind of come up and, and try and if stop you want it to use it, happens. please feel well. No, 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 no. I don't use other people's stuff. Uh, the best joke, the best joke, I think in the whole, uh, the whole routine was, so, so I'm Jewish. Uh, I'm, I'm not a practicing Jew. I, I know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that. joke. <laughs> I do a lot of Jewish jokes. And sometimes it goes really well. And other times I can actually like watch, I can energetically, I can <laughs> see the room just suck back away from me. And it's amazing. Like, um, and then I, I tell a lot of jokes about being Jewish in the South, but I have to be careful that I don't come off as anti-Christian, you know, and that is a fine line. Mm-hmm. And because I talk about it, it's not easy being Jewish in the South, you know, people don't get it. Uh, but now that I, I found a way to talk about, the Jewish stuff that, you know, really my mom takes most of the heat and then everyone thinks it's hysterical. <laughs> but my favorite joke that this is an example of something I think is funny that no one else seems to think is funny, but I still tell it is, you know, my daughter is borderline anti-Semitic. I'm like, you're half Jewish. And she says only half Jewish, <laughs> you know, like, like she's focused on the only part. Like, I think that's hysterical to have a kid who's like, I'm only half Jewish. It's like, that's the same as being half Jewish. Like that, but it's the half empty, half full thing. You know, huh. she's like, she's so not identified with her Judaism. She doesn't see herself as only half Christian. She sees herself as Christian hmm. and only half Jewish. Like she's a hundred percent Christian and 50% Jewish. And she wishes she was only not Jewish, you know, but, but she's, she's come around a little bit. Uh, it's as she's gotten older, it's, it's evolved. I'm kind of not laughing either. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like no one thinks it's as funny as I do. Um, but, but that's okay. You know, that's okay. I, I, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that, that there are things that I feel are important to say that not everyone's going to relate to. Now you can't have a whole act like that. Oh no. But, uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of a thing like means, well, I just tell that joke for me. It's not just like I tell it for me because I think it's funny and it cracks me up. Like it's in to me, it's an important piece of my daughters and my relationship. And a lot of the comedy is revelatory about the relationships that I'm talking Mm -hmm, about. mm -hmm. Uh, and I do think it speaks to her and, you know, kind of her personality, which she has a really sharp, quick sense of humor. Like it is, I mean, it's a thrill for me. It's the Jewish half of her. Yeah, right. It's right. There you go. See? Yeah. So she should be happy about it. Yeah, it definitely doesn't come from her mom's side of the family. Although her mom, now that we split up, she's a lot funnier. Like, you know, I she just, especially if she's, you know, taking that on me, she says things that are really, really funny to me, about me, at me, and they're hilarious. And I always laugh, you know, I'm like, I'm, if, if it's funny, yeah, well, I mean, if it's funny, I don't mind. Yeah. All right. If it's just offensive, then, you know, then that's all it is. Well, when I was doing this TEDx talk, um, I was relaying a story about a cartoon that I did that got me in a lot of hot water or actually around the world because of the internet. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. What was it? I'm not going to tell you about the cartoon, but I want to tell you what happened afterwards. It was, uh, I almost quit cartooning. I was so 
upset by a lot of the hate and invective that got sent my way that I, I really was, I re retreated. And so um, I'm relaying the story and I had a mentor about this presentation. So as I'm telling it, she's, she's really listening hard. And I said, uh, well, my wife at the time said, and I'm quoting, you need to grow a pair because not everyone's gonna agree with you. And if you're not gonna let your dad stop you from doing this stuff, why would you let some random stranger's rant stop you from doing it? Right. Oh, and uh, just don't draw Mohammed, okay? Now, I thought that was a kicker, a right. funny line. My mentor didn't think so. She said, I don't think you should put that in there. And I was like, well, it seems really funny to me, and I think it'll work. So I left it in there. Right. And she said, okay, you know, she was, if you think it'll work, and... Um, the night that I did the presentation, and this is this is in the video, uh, I I said it, and it got some laughs, you right. know. So I had the instinct that it was funny, and like I've said earlier, it doesn't always the instinct doesn't always pay off, but I thought that was going to work. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The cartoon was uh, was not drawn well enough to get my point across. I see. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you I'll have, leave it at that. You have to be, yeah, you have to be, you know, you know, it's sort of like they say in comedy, like a lot of times I'll see, especially beginning comics, and I am one, um, they'll be talking about, you know, I want to use profanity, I want to use this word, I want to use that word, you know, is that okay, or should I do racist humor or whatever, and the best answer I saw somebody give, and they said, it didn't originate with them, they had heard it somewhere, they said, you know, the edgier it is, the funnier it has to be. Like if it's the more offensive it is, it's just got to be that much funnier. Mm. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And which means that if you're in your first five or ten years of doing comedy, you probably shouldn't be doing those jokes. <laughs> like very few new comics are sophisticated enough to write something that's clever enough to make the offensiveness okay. Uh huh. And uh, I think that's you know one of the interesting things about comedy right now is. You can, it's almost like, I, I like to compare it to the poker boom. It's a huge comedy boom right now. Mm -hmm. Everyone's doing it, mm -hmm. including me. I'm swept up in it. I was swept up in the poker boom too. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it. I was like, you know, just in the, in the beginning of it, but not before it. You know, I wasn't one of the trendsetters, but I was pretty early in, in getting addicted to poker. And, you know, this guy named Chris Moneymaker was an accountant from Arkansas or something. He won the World Series of Poker. And suddenly every Yahoo thought they could play poker. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit similar with comedy. Like comedy's become so abundant that everybody thinks they can do it and everyone's doing it. And you can, there's such easy access to see so many pro comics mm -hmm. on Comedy Central. And, you know, there's a couple satellite radio stations. YouTube. Listen to them. YouTube. Yeah, Netflix. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And so people can see comedy a lot more now, which makes it more, it's, it's more accessible. And so more people think they can do it. And because they're seeing people who've been doing it for a really long time, cussing on stage, dancing around issues of racial tension and sexual orientation, these really hot button issues, because mm -hmm. you do have to approach that stuff as you get better. They think they can do it and they haven't developed, they don't realize the pieces of themselves they haven't developed enough in order to get away with talking about that stuff. So, um, yeah, I, have, I only have one joke that's at all racially related and 
I've run it by both. I mean, I, a few individuals. I mean, I've performed it a couple times, but, but people are afraid to laugh at it. But it's white people that are afraid to laugh at it. You know, it's like I. It's a joke where you know, um, it mentions black people and East Indians, and I told the joke to both a black guy and an Indian woman. They both laughed hysterically. They're like, "You absolutely can tell that joke. It's not offensive." And but if I ever tell it, and it's in Asheville, it's all PC white people. You know. They're the ones who get offended by it on behalf of the minority who right. they're not. Right. Well, how many places do you play where you have anything other than an all-white audience? Um, only when I'm in Charlotte or a little bit in Greenville. Yeah. Um, and Greenville is where I kind of privately ran it by these other comedians. I wanted to get their take on it because mm -hmm. I'm not interested in offending people. Mm -hmm. But I think this is actually a funny bit. And I actually think it's it's not just funny. I think it's about something that's real, you know. Um, I refer to my family as being uh, parenthetically racist. And yeah, <laughs> and uh, and then I go on to explain, you know, two examples of that. The first one that is parenthetically racist and the second one's not parenthetical at all. <laughs> like it's just racist. <laughs> uh -huh. So uh, and and I mean, I think it's funny as hell. I'm not I'm not comfortable doing it on the podcast, but uh, I also try not to do too much of my material in here. But um but I just will say, like, maybe I'm not there yet where I can get away with it. Like, maybe the joke's not as sophisticated or as whatever as I think it is. Um, or maybe I just haven't tried it in front of the right audience to see if actually I can get away with it. I think this cartoon that we, I've been talking about was 2009. So my hope is that I've got gotten a little further along this path to where if I do something like that, I'll know how to do it better to mm. make it funnier. Yeah. I mean, how experienced were you in 2009? Well, I was eight years less experienced than I am. Yeah, now. but out of 50, right? You said you've been doing this for 50 years? Yeah. Yeah. Have right. you, do you feel like you've matured? I mean, that's an interesting thought. I mean, have you matured significantly in the last eight years as a, as a cartoonist? Um, actually, I'd have to say that... Yes, I feel like I'm uh, after this convention, I did that TED talk like in a week afterwards I got back. Right. And the, that double whammy just really did accelerate something in in me. That's to great. To the point where I feel like every cartoon I draw can be a really good cartoon. I look at them as I'm doing them and I'm just like, oh yeah, this is going to be a good one. Um and I feel the same way about uh, my music too. I feel like I'm I'm peaking at both of those endeavors right now. Um, that I'm as good as I've ever been, and I feel like I'm continually getting better. That's uh, great. It's a great feeling. Yeah, that's a great uh, feeling. I feel like I'm probably going to keel over with a heart attack tomorrow, just because everything's going everything's so well. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. That's the Jewish part in you. <laughs> yeah. The 100% Jewish the 100% part. 100% Jewish part. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, plus, I'm, I'm now... I'll be 63 in a, in a week or so, and uh, it's like, okay. Yeah, more of the systems I feel are breaking down. I can definitely not, avo not avoid them anymore. Stuff's happening because I'm... I've been around the sun 63 times. Right. Uh, yeah. 
So you seem pretty healthy. I mean, you keep you keep eating at Whole Foods. You ought to stick around for a little while. Well, my mom is uh, ninety-two, and uh, she, I she still beats me at Scrabble. So my, that's right. You post about that every now and then. My hope is that uh, I've inherited some of that. Yeah, yeah, probably. How about your dad? Um, he was a lifelong smoker. Uh, he uh. died when he was seventy-eight, back in ninety-eight. Um, and my mom, she quit long before he, he had to, and, uh, never looked back. I think I take after more like my mom than my dad. My brother's more like my, my dad. In terms of his lifestyle choices or. Yeah. And, and just sort of, uh, genetically Mm. he got more of dad. I think I have both of my parents' bad qualities. That's, that's, (laughs) that's how I see it. Well, I've got a few of those too. (laughs) Yeah. Not from your parents, but my parents. (laughs) That's better for you. <laughs> My brother from another mother. <laughs> yeah, that's how I open these days, as I say. Uh, I'm just trying not to become my parents, you know, but I have my father's bulging belly and my mother's childbearing hips, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then that goes on from there. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I you know, I just started performing a year and a half ago, and what's nice is people who've been doing it for a while, they're surprised that I've only been doing it a year and a half. Like that's a really nice compliment. Um, and I think it just has to do with being older. Like I have real things to talk about and I've spent a lot of my life expressing myself through writing and stuff. So now it's just figuring out how to perform better. And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like I just went to comedy school and, and they were like, you need voices. You have all these different characters. They all need a voice. You can't, you can't introduce anybody new who doesn't have their own voice. So I've just started doing voices on stage. And that was really hard for me the first time I did it because I felt so self-conscious. But now it's like I can't I can't not do it like Mm -hmm. it's and I've had a number of people say to me, they're like, I love the voices. Like, when did you decide to do that? You know, I was like, I was like, teachers, (laughs) they were right. You know, hot pockets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He well, he's you know. He uses voices differently, uh-huh. Jim Gaffigan. He's got that, you know, sort of woman subconscious, that old woman who's <laughs> complaining about everything he says and does. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, when my mother, when she talks, she now has a voice. And, you know, any of the women I've dated, they all have the same voice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and my daughter has a voice. Those are the three main characters mm-hmm. uh, that, that I've had to develop voices for. But... That's been an interesting thing. Like, That's having, cool. Yeah. So, So okay. Take me through, like, what's your favorite cartoon that you've done? And maybe walk me through the process, if you would, about conceptualizing it and drawing it. And even just like you did earlier, like, left to right. Like, like see if you can't make me see and feel the process so, so I meet myself and anyone listening can kind of like imagine what goes into a cartoon. Cause I don't think we can possibly realize how sophisticated they are. <laughs> no pressure, Dave. No pressure. Uh, um, well, to answer your first question, I probably have in my archives three or 4,000 cartoons. So there's no way I'm going to be able to say this is my favorite. That's cartoon. fine. That's, no one's going to know if it's your actual favorite okay. until except that you've acknowledged that. Yeah. Uh, okay. And also, wow. Like three or 4,000, like, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Generally I have a deadline. So I'm always, well, I'm always thinking about ideas. If it's a local editorial cartoon, I read the paper every day 
local news on the internet. I try to stay abreast of stuff that's going on and for national stuff as well. Like I said earlier, that's just the way I look at the world. So it's sure. always running through my head. When I know it, I have to draw for a deadline. I'll take my piece of my Bristol board and I'll stick it on my drawing table under the clip. I might futz around a little bit more, but eventually I'll sit down and I'll start staring at the paper and I'll start writing things that come to my mind down on a little slip of paper. My drawing table is covered with little slips of paper and uh, big folded sheets of someone's picture I printed to use as a reference. Right. It's all over the, t the table. So finally, when the idea comes to me, it usually comes to me as an image as well as a caption, if there's going to be a caption. I'll just start sketching uh, with a HB lead pencil. If it's working, I'll, I'll get into it. If it's not, I'll erase it, start over, or maybe even leave that and just turn the piece of board over. Sometimes in the middle of a cartoon, I'll go, oh, no, this is a better way to say this. Right. So I'll just turn it over. Once it's all sketched out, and this goes on for a while, because if it involves people, it's got to look like them. It's got right. to have a caricature. I've gotten better at hands, but I still have a lot of problems with the mouth. Mm. So the mouth gets erased a lot, usually, trying to get... The, the expression right, making it fit the contours of the face as I've drawn it. Uh, caricature is basically a pretty simple, it can be a very simple art because you're expanding on very noticeable features. Right. Okay, just using Trump as an example. His hair, his eyebrows, uh, his, the way he puckers his mouth, the size of his hands, um, <laughs> the red tie. These are all things that you can just expand and however far you want to go with it. Um, and so once the pencil drawing is all where I want it to be, I will line uh, line do lines with a T-square for... Uh, dialogue. Oh, write the dialogue, which I've worked out already. Right. And then um, that's ready to go. And then I usually step away from it and we'll do something else for a while. Uh, then I'll come back and look at it. Okay, is this as good as it can be? Should I change anything before I start inking? So once I've decided on that, I usually either put on some music or I have a, a podcast that I listen to. I really like. Um, pardon learning, the, is it learning to fail? No, it's a <laughs> part of the interruption. These two two guys that talk about uh, the sports of the day. Okay, Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon. Just I love the way they interact. Um, and so I start inking, and I use uh, pens that have like five or six different nibs, but they're you know disposable pens, uh, and. I always ink that dialogue first. I don't know why. Maybe it's like I'm convincing myself that I don't need to change anything else. Mm. Uh, so I do that, and then I ink the rest of it. 
I then go back with a eraser and erase all the pencil lines that you still see. Then I usually take another step away before I start shading. I'm not very comfortable with color, so most of my work is done and looks in the same uh, vein as uh, I, um, like Malden, um, Herblock, uh, this guy Giles from England. It's all shading with like, back then they used charcoal or Conte crayons. Now I use a black uh, colored pencil, a Prisma colored pencil. And I shade the cartoon and then I scan it into the computer and I do a little adjustments on it. Usually I make it um, a little darker on the computer and I resize it and then I send it off. I have a, a subscription list that people subscribe to and I uh, send it to my editors at the newspaper and I send them to Gannett, the parent company. And then I post them on Facebook. I have a couple pages. One is specifically for new cartoons. And then Instagram. I started doing Instagram with my cartoons as well. So that's the process. Okay. And so, like, can you can you take us through one in particular where you, like, about you talk about like the joke from left to right and what was the story you were telling and and okay i'll tell you about the one i drew today okay great yeah um because it's your favorite (laughs) right now it's your best work (laughs) that's right i'm continually going up uh okay so we live in Asheville, north carolina which is the home of the very famous writer thomas wolf right um my cartoon idea was for the, the newspaper and it's kind of a, uh, it's a soft idea. It's not very biting politically or anything. Sometimes that's the kind of cartoon I have to draw for the newspaper. And it, the idea is uh, if Thomas Wolfe was alive today. And so I've got Thomas Wolfe sitting in a coffee shop with a laptop. And um, he's uh, got some headphones on. <laughs> and he's saying... Uh, He's writing on the laptop and he's saying, this is going to be great on my Look Hotel Word Angel podcast <laughs> instead of Look Home Word right. Angel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it. there's uh, a barista delivering uh, a double espresso to him saying, dude, that's seven fifty for the double espresso. And Wolf is really wrapped up in his, his writing. So I downloaded a picture of Thomas Wolf that I could use as reference. I wasn't going to, I had to change the angle of his head, so I couldn't find a picture of him that way. Right. So I kind of had to use my uh, cartoon imagination. Yeah, artistic ability. Or, yeah, facsimile thereof. <laughs> uh, and so he took the longest, getting his face to where I felt it was good. Right. It, the caption... Uh, if Thomas Wolfe was alive today, is goes from the upper left-hand corner across the top of the cartoon. The again, this is hard to explain visually. It's all right. Okay, we're all listening. <laughs> okay, now the counter runs like this, and he's sitting like this, and the barista is over here, and the caption is, goes across like this, and the dialogue is here and here. So you're you following the dialogue, the, the title of the cartoon, and then the rest of it goes down and proceeds to 
Thomas Wolfe's dialogue, Thomas Wolfe, the barista's dialogue, and then the barista. So it goes from left to right. And generally, someone viewing a cartoon is going to take the whole thing in at once. Right. Visually. And then they'll go back and read it. So it, it, it all works visually. And the barista's caption, I mean, you get a laugh, hopefully, from what Thomas Wolfe is thinking. Right. And then you get the second laugh from the barista. And then maybe the third laugh is on the barista's apron. The name of the coffee shop is Feel the Urn. <laughs> That's awesome. I just had a thought. Is Arabic written from right to left or left to right? I don't know, but Hebrew is written. I know Hebrew is right to left. Yeah. Well, here was my thought, and I wish I knew the answer. Because if Arabic is written right to left, maybe... <laughs> The reason they find our political cam uh, cartoons so offensive is it's they're starting at the punchline, <laughs> like if they're, so they're just starting at the offensive part. There's there's no backstory. They just see like the awful thing at the end without without <laughs> without understanding how we arrived at that point. So there's no appreciation for the journey. There's just the insult. Wow, I think uh, you need to go to the UN. You need to like broach that idea. Uh, Go to the Middle East. It just came to me, <laughs> but I don't know. I for some reason I think Arabic is written left to right. Um, I don't I, know either. I don't know. It's usually yeah. the uh, the image of Muhammad that's the most offensive, not anything written. Yeah, but they start with that. Uh, it's true. I mean, there's probably no there's probably no doing it that's not offensive. <laughs> but people ask me. They say, you know, I draw a lot of um, what could be build as anti-Christian cartoons. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not because I'm Jewish. It's more because I just feel like there's just... Uh, how can I put this? The thing I like about being Jewish is we don't encourage people to become Jews. It's right. like, if you want to become Jewish, it's a really hard thing to become Jewish. Right. And you you'll wind up knowing more about Judaism than most Jews. Right. The Christian thing of, you know, this is the only way to be saved and I'm going to I'm in your face about it. I didn't like that part. Yeah. So, that probably comes across as horribly uh, uh bigoted. And it probably is. But people say, "Well, do you draw any Jewish cartoons? Any anti-Jewish cartoons?" And I've done a few uh, and certainly most of the Jews I've known have more of a sense of humor than a lot of the Christians I've known. But I still feel weird about drawing Jewish cartoons. So there's something wrong in my thought process because I should be an equal opportunity offender and not worry about uh, <laughs> my people or, or, or something. Well, I think you should offend whatever percentage of the population is Jewish. <laughs> That's how often you should be doing Jewish ones. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Um, but I say that as a fellow Jew. So, but I understand that. Yeah, I understand that. I, I, I don't, when I do anything Jewish, apart from my Jewish mother sounding very much like a Jewish mother, but she's, it's about her worrying about her son, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, 
but I don't take cheap pot shots at Judaism, you know, and I doubt you're doing that either with Christianity or Judaism, right? I mean, it's, but that feeling as, and this is something that, that I remember when my stepsister got married, they had a totally not religious wedding, but during the, um, ceremony, the officiant mentioned Jesus like once, you know, and my mom's Jewish, but this is her stepdaughter mm-hmm. and my mom and I are probably the only Jews at the, at the wedding. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, both of us recoiled at just the mention of the word Jesus. Not that we recoil all the time. I can talk about Jesus all day long. It's no problem. But in the, in the wedding ceremony, like <laughs> it, it just, we were both like, we, we both heard it Yeah. and we mentioned it to, you know, like her husband who I do not like, and I don't care if the world knows it. Um, and he's like, I, you know, they didn't, he didn't say, she didn't say Jesus. Like, yeah, she did. You know, they don't notice it. Like, <laughs> it's it's not a word that jumps out at them, but it's like if somebody mentions Jesus in a almost in any context for me, like it's the only word I hear. It I can't even hear the rest of the sentence. Like, and and I think that's a very different experience that uh, Jews have, and non maybe just non Christians, um, but I think especially Jews because our relationship with our religion, unless you're super orthodox, most of us have a pretty more like a a strong cultural affiliation and a less religious affiliation. Like, I don't know that Muslims would feel the same pinch around Christianity that Jews feel because they're pretty attached to Islam. You know, they have a a religious identity that they're holding on to with a, I I think a similar, generally speaking for us. I'm totally speaking in generalities and, and I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Um, but I know it doesn't take much as a Jew to feel like we're being proselytized to. Yeah, and uh, persecuted more so these days than yeah. Well, yeah, there's a, it's awful stuff going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in general, like I said about the, the practicing Jew, it's like I, I don't practice Judaism. I don't identify with it. I never did as a kid. I had to go to Sunday school. I wasn't bar mitzvahed and I wasn't confirmed because I wouldn't have it, any of that. Mm. Um, and I basically I'm against all organized religion. So that part I try to um, be a, you know, attack things I, f- I feel are wrong about certain religions. Right. But, you know, I don't want to go all Salman Rushdie and, uh, you know, wind up in hiding. Well, that is a thing like, the other thing about like having Judaism be the butt of the joke of a cartoon, and this is the thing, like that's that is all like written comedy. It's like texting. There's no tone of voice. I mean, you try to portray as much of it as you can, but ultimately, mm-hmm. it's an opportunity for the person to project a lot of their own yeah. interpretation onto it. So, and. Your last name's Cohen. That's a pretty Jewish name. It's about as Jewish as it gets. Yeah, but, you know, it's still entirely possible that someone's not thinking about your name or necessarily looked at who you are before they looked at the cartoon. So a cartoon, which is at the expense of Jews, might just look Mm anti-Semitic. 
you know, oh, his name's Cohen. Oh, well, he must be a self-loathing Jew. You know, like, <laughs> like it's, 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 there's, there may not be the um, opportunity for people to see it with enough distance and perspective to, to get the joke before they're already offended. That's why I signed my name really big. Really big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have kids? No. No? Are you married now? No. Okay. You've been married once? Twice. Twice? All right. I had a couple of stepdaughters. A couple of stepdaughters? Yeah. How much of their lives were you apart? About 10, 8, 9 years, something like that. Okay. Like early or later? Like uh, Early to uh, teenage. To teenage? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I was just curious what you're like. I was curious what people's relationship history is and... And stuff like that. I think, uh, I've oh. never been married, and I don't know that I ever will be. You know, it's like mm -hmm. I don't think it's. Um, I kind of feel about marriage the way you seem to feel about organized religion. Like I, um, I, I kind of was felt the same way uh, until I met the two women that were to be my wives, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I'd like to marry this person. And unfortunately, my parents were my role model. Of They were married for 53 years. And I figured consciously or subconsciously that this was a good thing and, and I should, you know, get in on it. Right. But not. Well, ultimately, they were great. Really. Uh, wonderful experiences that helped me become who I am and uh, helped me figure out uh better ways to relate to people all right yeah that's that's that sounds generously put well it's the truth i met a guy today i i've met him before once um and i saw him today and uh and i had to reintroduce myself and then he then he remembered me because we met in a very obvious way like and uh and so we talked for a few minutes and then like about 10 or 15 minutes later he's like oh I, I heard you met my wife, my ex-wife, you know, and as and I had gone on a couple of dates with her, <laughs> and and uh, and I said, yeah. I said that didn't that didn't work out, you know, and uh, he said, you're a better man than I. I said, well, no, there was a better man than me. Like, I'm I'm not the better man. There was an even better man, and he said, I think you should still go for it, you know. I was like, do you not like me or something? Like, <laughs> what's what's happening here? Because I thought we were friends, you know, but you're telling me to go after this woman who you're saying, you know, you had a hard time, you had a hard marriage with and a hard divorce with, you know, it was very, very funny. And uh, so that was a little awkward. But I mean, I I wasn't, I mean, we'd sleep together. It wasn't a serious, it didn't get serious. So there didn't need to be a lot of awkwardness, uh -huh. you know, but it's a little awkward, you know. Sure. Um, and I didn't realize that he knew. I knew who he was in the context of this woman like mm -hmm. as i be <laughs> befriended her i realized i saw some pictures of them and then you know in a conversation she confirmed who he was and then i said oh yeah I, you know i was wondering about that because i saw your pictures together or whatever uh man Asheville's just too small you just you can't you, you just you, you can't throw a rock without hitting someone you know it's a social tar pit it, yeah, it really is. And I don't like I've stopped meeting people except for now that I'm dating online because I'm just tired of being single. So I'm I'm on like all the dating sites just 
just trying to meet people, at least broaden you, my circle. Do you go on dates? Oh, yeah. 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 I went on two with this guy's ex-wife. <laughs> I mean, that's how you met her? That's how I met her. Yeah, I was online. <laughs> and uh, she was online for like 15 minutes, you know, and, and I was the one guy she decided to go out with. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, no, I've been on a lot of first dates and a couple second dates and nothing that's really well, taken. I will say that I do miss companionship i miss being with someone i miss the physical aspects of it as well as the mental and spiritual but in the now four years since i got divorced my last divorce has been an incredible time of growth for me in my uh arts right because i haven't had to share that energy with anybody right so in some ways i don't know whether it's going to happen again in my lifetime that I'll have a, a that kind of significant relationship. Mm. Um, and I never was much one for casual relationships. Mm. So uh, I've just, I haven't given up hope. It's more like I've just given up any expectations or thinking about it and just trying to be as open to whatever is going to happen as possible. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it, like I said, it's been great for my, my work. Yeah, I have gotten more accomplished artistically in the last three years since, you know, uh, my ex and I split up than I have in a really long time. And, and I got to a point this summer where I was like, I don't think I want a relationship, you know, like I'm really into my comedy. I'm really into my, I'm starting this podcast. Like I don't have time for a relationship right now. Uh, but then I met somebody over the summer in real life, like not online. We actually met hmm. and, and like each other and connected and, and it was a long distance thing. It didn't work out for a number of reasons, but, but for the time that it did work out, it was awesome. You know, we really fell in love with each other and it was very, uh, it was very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh fuck, I do want a relationship, you know, like, <laughs> Like that sucked, like having one and then having it end and then realizing, yeah, this is something I want, you know, and I was like, ah, oh, what a bummer. Cause I was happier <laughs> when I didn't feel like I wanted it or needed it, yeah. you know, but now I've recognized the desire for it. So now I'm, you know, I'm online and I'm, I, I don't meet anybody otherwise. I mean, I'm in my warehouse, I'm in my house, I'm with my daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I did meet that, that woman over the summer when I was with my daughter, that was pretty funny. Uh, but, um, it didn't, you know, become something until later, but yeah, it's, you know, I, you, you really, those, those things really do happen when we're not looking for them, you know? Yeah. Um, that's what they say. And so I'm not looking really hard. <laughs> the other thing is that I'm, you know, I'm older. I'm so much older. And that now I'm kind of uh, kind of seeing the end of the road a little bit more. Mm. I, especially I see my mother uh, three or four times a week. We play Scrabble and I go, you know, see her where she's living. And I think, you know, and I see all the people that she's living with. Right. And what stages they are in their lives it's it's been very uh, eye-opening you know this the thought of i wasn't very close with my dad when he died he'd been sick for a couple of years and so it was more of a relief than anything for him and for us mm. 
I don't know how I'm going to feel when my mom goes because uh, I'm just that much closer to her. Sure, yeah. So seeing seeing her in this situation where, God, she's been there all my life. Now she's at some point is not going to be. Yeah. That's uh, that's also sort of playing into the whole thing of uh, who I am, where I am in my life right now, and what I want. Uh, it's just uh, pretty confusing and try to just, well, I'll just draw a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll play the drums. I'll, you know, I'll practice. I'll do gigs. I'll, uh, I'll go to work. I'll just be. And uh, whatever happens will happen. I've had a lot of great things happen in my life. You know, maybe I've, Maybe the quota's been reached. I doubt it. You're 63, <laughs> you said, right? That's not that old, man. Yeah. That's not new, that old it's, anymore. It's the new 64. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles would have to rewrite that song. <laughs> so uh, do you have any kind of like spirituality? Is that important? You're such a like, you're such a lovely man. Like, you know, you're like a very gentle being and you're, I think you're really sincere and you embody a lot of those qualities that I think people try to attain. You're looking at me with like, really, you see that in me? Um, I think so. You know, that's how I experienced you. I experienced you as really, um, like kind and wise. And, and so I'm just curious. I mean, do you have a spirituality? Is, Is that a piece of your life? Is that important to you? What's the old cliche? Uh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, the older I get, the more spiritual I become. Uh, I don't, I don't envision any kind of foxhole conversion uh, on my deathbed, but um, I recognize that I there's a lot more out there than I can know or even conceive of. Um, I, I, every day is kind of like a miracle to be alive, to be breathing, to be able to do what I do. Um, so I feel like that's, uh, part of my spirituality of being able to, uh, look at things that are, I mean, I spent this whole time that we've been talking, looking at this painting mm. it just, it blows me away. I love that painting. And I've been looking at different aspects of it as we talk. Uh, and just the fact that I get to see it, I'm here seeing it is just this cool little miracle of yeah. life. I'm trying to take every day as like, it could be my last. And I, I guess I've had some health scares uh, to where it sort of jumped out at me that any day could be your last. And then, you know, looking at my mom and all the people that surround her. So that's, I think, is what my spirituality is all about. Now, you and I live in this uh, town of, like, total new age uh, hipster uh, uh, spirituality. Yeah. Um, You you can't throw a dead cat without hitting a yoga teacher here in town. Yeah, it's true. or offending one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so um, I, I'm, I see a lot of that, especially working at a Whole Foods. Right. Uh, 
I see a lot of that. And to me, it's just another less than organized, but still organized religion that uh, I don't want any part of. Spirituality to me is just being aware of, you know, the world. Yeah, I try not to get too down about anything. I try not to get too up about anything. It's like one of the really influential books that I read as a um, young younger man was a uh, Siddhartha by Herman oh, yeah, Hesse. Great book, yeah. Uh, and it was just the whole cycle of, uh, you know his life and how, how he wound up and the revelation he had and how he became much more uh, in tune with simplicity. It's kind of been a guiding force uh, for me over the years. I just read it again. I remember reading it again right before uh, we I moved out uh, of the house. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of a middle path kind of spirituality like I, I had a great time at that convention and I could have been like you know pissing my pants I was so happy but I just tried to stay in the middle and you know just feel like um, this is great this is what's supposed to be happening I'm here now for a reason I rejoined for a reason and it was in Durham for a reason and here I am and hi yeah oh yeah yeah I love your stuff you know it's like fuck you do really yeah. <laughs> okay cool uh yeah nice that's that's my spirituality just really appreciating just being alive yeah just appreciating being alive it sounds yeah. like it yeah though i will you know if someone says something like uh you know yeah i, I jewed him down you know to get a get better price or uh you know uh, i see some kind of nazi symbolism i'll uh you know my jewish hackles will raise a bit and i'll you know i'll confront somebody about that but that's more like uh, cultural than uh, religious. Well, and that shit's offensive. Yeah, like, like you're, some of you're my Christian human. cartoons. Yeah, well, <laughs> I haven't seen. I guess I haven't seen them. But I, I'm thinking like your human shackles should get raised. I mean, it's like we should all be offended by things that are absolutely. offensive. And, absolutely, and of course. But offensive is in the eye of the beholder. To a degree, you know. It's like pornography. Um, I don't know what it is, but I know what it is. <laughs> I know when I see it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, obviously, as Jews, especially now, it, it really is crazy. Like, this whole rise of anti-Semitism, this, this rebirth, you know, it's nuts what's going on right now. It's just a segment of all the other hates that are. That oh, are yeah. There's tons of hate. Yeah. Raising up, you know, for everything. But it just seemed like we were out of the woods as a group for a while, you know, um, but we're not. We just never are. You know, we're just we just there's just a there is a uh, percentage of the population that's just. You know, always going to be excited to take their frustrations out on the Jews, and that's just well, the way it is. Yeah, they they resent their uh, their banking and Hollywood overlords. <laughs> that's such a ridiculous conception, or it feels it to me anyway. But um, <laughs> I mean, because I don't have a lot of money or fame, so I don't understand. Like, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there's so many things about me that aren't Jewish. <laughs> uh, there were some air quotes there for those of you who couldn't hear them. But, but we are both kind of nebbishes. 
Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I just know I'm high maintenance. That's what everybody tells me, and they don't have to be Jewish for that. That's true. But apparently, I'm <laughs> I'm like a male Jewish American princess. <laughs> but I I definitely. A friend of mine said, "I just uh, I'm going to go to Vegas in October and teach yoga." And and she said, "You know, someone asked me about if she should hire you for a. She wants to invite you to teach at this yoga festival there." And she said, you know, Jason's been really great. I've been sponsoring them. I loan them product and stuff. She's like, Jason's been great. I'm thinking about inviting him. What do you think? And she wrote to me. She said, I told her you were really high maintenance. <laughs> but in fact, she told her that I was professional and terrific to work with. But, uh. but, she didn't, <laughs> but, but she didn't tell me the good part until after she told me the other thing. I was like, no, you didn't. I know, I, I know her well enough to know that she wouldn't do that. But it was funny. You know, she was also telling me that that's how she experiences me. Uh, but the, you know, she would never do that to me professionally. <laughs> so, um, and I'm going to teach at her studio while I'm out there. So I'm excited about that trip because I'll perform. I'm, you know, I'm going to do the conference one weekend and I'm going to teach at her studio the next weekend. And in between, I'm going to try and perform all over Vegas, even if it's just open mics. Although yeah. I will try to get something that isn't cool. just an open mic. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's exciting. Um, that's what's really been fun for me is I do all this traveling for yoga anyway. So now I go... I pad my trips a couple of days on each end so I can perform in these new cities. And that's always a blast. Do you ever perform comedy for yoga people? I haven't yet. Um, most of my stuff's a little edgy for yoga people. If they're truly yoga people, like if, the, if they're fitting the stereotype and a lot of times the people who go to these conferences, they, a lot of times they're new to yoga. Huh. And this is a way for them to like get go deeper and find out what they like and buy the right mat and you know yoga mm -hmm. block which happens to be mine, and and so a lot of times they're feeling their way and they can be a little adherent to some of the doctrine sometimes you know, uh, but yeah there's a there's there's a whole populace in the yoga world that is kind of what you were talking about being fed up with just in the spirituality of. Asheville it's like it's, it's do you have any yoga jokes in your routines I do not have any yoga jokes I don't think I feel like I had one at one point oh I do have I did have one um I grown my mustache out for oh. uh for Movember uh -huh. and just really just to do it and I just used Movember as an excuse to grow mm -hmm. an awful looking mustache <laughs> and then so for the month of November my comedy was about this mustache and I said, you know, I just, I want to, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, I'm growing my mustache out this month. I want you to know that I know that this isn't working. Like, I don't want you to think I think this looks good. <laughs> I, but I'm not having sex right now, so I might as well have a mustache. And I said, you know, my yoga teacher calls it a brahmacharya mustache. Because brahmacharya means you're practicing celibacy. And she said, as long as you have that mustache, <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one's going to sleep with you. <laughs> so... So yes, I did have a yoga joke. That's good. Yeah, um, and then I would follow it up with saying, "So I quit. I quit doing yoga." Um, and then the room would like that because most people who go to comedy clubs don't do yoga. Apparently, I guess it's you know. <laughs> you think? I, you know, I guess. I mean, I guess I'm starting to see the world differently. I mean, I'm. I don't really drink. I don't really smoke. I've done all that stuff in my life, but for the last 15 years, I've been living pretty pretty clean. Mm -hmm. And I try, I actually try to drink 
so I can kind of normalize a little bit, but I don't really enjoy being drunk or anything. It's just, it's not fun for me. So, um, but I'm spending all this time now in these environments where people really do drink a lot and do smoke a lot and do, you know, they're kind of killing themselves a little bit, not just the comedians, but the audience, like that's the environment. I'm like, really people drink and smoke this much? Well, yeah, you're performing in a bar. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in, I'm in their territory. It's the same way with playing gigs. Yeah, right. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I don't do that stuff either. And it's, uh, it can be not only a little painful to watch, but also it cuts down on the women that I would like to meet. <laughs> yeah, right. You're not going to meet them there because they're drunk and smell like smoke. Yeah. The smoking's a bigger deal for me than the drinking because I can assume that anyone, anyone can go to a bar and drink one night. It doesn't mean that they drink all the time. But if somebody smokes, they probably smoke, like yeah, especially well, these days. There's yeah. not a lot of people who smoke only when they drink, unless they drink every night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, and, uh, you know, you can still smoke in a bar in South Carolina. I know. So we try not to do any gigs down there. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And uh, I, th- I feel like in Tennessee, is that also true? Yeah, in Tennessee it was true too. But for many years, you could, and... Usually the uh, the air intake was right above you on the above the stage, so all that smoke would come at the band. When I was in Colorado, I performed at a cannabis lounge. <laughs> I did like twenty minutes, standing up, facing all these people who were sitting down, and I was in the cloud, you know. <laughs> and I had not smoked pot since two thousand and one, since I was in Brazil. And so this is only like this is last year. So it had been fifteen years since I'd been high, and I was just secondhand stoned for the entire time, you know, and, and I'm just standing there and every joke I tell I'm smoking secondhand smoking more and more of this dope. And it's not just one kind. It's like everybody's smoking something different. I'm getting all of it, you know? So I'm paranoid and I'm happy and I'm hungry. And like, I was having every possible were the jokes working. You know, they were, they were really delayed. Like <laughs> the, the crowd work worked really well. But the jokes, they would literally laugh like three to eight seconds late. You know, like it took, a, it was like it, the joke had to go through the smoke and then into their brains and kind of roll around a little bit. And then at some point they would get it. <laughs> and I was trying out this new bit at the time about an ast- astrologer having an astrologer. And I had written it while I was there. So it was brand spanking new and not working very well. And uh, about eight minutes after I had told that bit, one of the guys was like, you don't smoke pot, but you have an astrologer. I was like, that was eight minutes ago, dude. <laughs> like, is that how long it took you to formulate that question? And so that was really, really funny. And then, and then I went, so I was staying with the people. I was teaching yoga all weekend. And this was the Saturday night during my yoga training you know and i invited everyone to come but only the the owners of the studio came and and so we went home and we got home at like 11 at night we hadn't eaten since lunch and i was uh starving i was eat i mean i was really hungry from not eating but i also really had the munchies but i didn't realize i had the munchies because it's been 15 years (laughs) since i'd had them and so i was eating like you know first i ate whatever pot roast or brisket whatever they made and then you know well it's nice to have some chips with it and then she brought home a carrot cake and then it was like carrots and hummus and chips and i I ate so much food and i ate like i was i'm generally gluten-free i ate like you know an eighth of this total gluten carrot cake 
and and not even a good one, just pure sugar and awful. And and then I went to bed and I woke up and I was still stoned. And I <laughs> and I went to teach and I was like, but I was in a good space. I was like really happy and mellow and and I was telling everyone the story about having gone out last night and performed in the club and and they were like, You do seem different today, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was uh it was really funny. I've tried to tell that on stage and it's somehow it's not funny. Like it doesn't, tra- it translates one-on-one in a conversation with someone, but it doesn't mm. translate. It doesn't translate from the stage. So yeah. I don't know why. I think it's funny. You should work on it some more. Yeah, maybe make it work. Yeah. Make it work. I don't know. The thing is, you know, part of me doesn't want to be a comedian who tells drug stories like, I have a great, the first story I ever told on stage was a drug story. And then there was more to it. And I realized as long as I own a yoga company, I don't need this story to be out there. Like, um, <laughs> uh, uh, it's just not the right, yeah, sure. it's not the right thing. So one day I'll be able to tell that story again. But I, I, I try to focus on things that if my yoga clients hear me talking about it, they're still going to be okay with supporting me and my company. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I don't want to edit myself. Like I, I will, I will do what I think is funny, but I'm, I'm not unconscious of the fact that, that there are, um, there's a greater impact to be had. Yeah, that's good. So, uh, I think that applies to what I'm doing as well. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, Basically, I want to get reactions, and I like to poke the bear with a stick is kind of the idea. Um, but I also want to want to entertain, and I don't want to damage myself by you know reputation or you know or actual some kind of physical confrontation. Right, right, right. Um, the torches and the pitchforks will be <laughs> knocking at the door. Nah, they'll be coming for me first. Oy vey. Sometimes I worry about it and other times I just think, well, if that's what happens, that's what happens. You know, I just, at first I was really arrogant. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm like Trump, I hate you. And I don't care who knows it, you know, like you're really a problem. And if you're going to decide to come for all the Jews or all the people who said something bad about you, you can come for me first. And now I'm like, fuck man, he might come for me first. (laughs) You know, like it just doesn't seem that far-fetched it doesn't seem that far-fetched it just doesn't i i just i can't believe that in our country people like me are starting to live in fear of our government like i don't spend a lot of time on it but it's there it didn't used to be there i never used to have that fear in a government you know like of the government some people would say that you you should have you know yeah i guess a very long time you know white male privilege um, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, but I feel it as a Jew. I feel it as a liberal, like I, as opposed to just feeling like, sure, all individuals, I don't know if this is how you meant it, but you know, to a degree, all individuals need to be equally aware and vigilant and concerned for their individual rights. Right. But I am f- feeling it more as a, you know, a minority of sorts. Um, I mean the Judaism, obviously I'm white male. It's pretty privileged position to be in. Um, although, you know, here's the one issue I have with the phrase white privilege and it's a very legit, 
but it shouldn't be a privilege. Like the things that we take for granted that are considered white privilege, those shouldn't be privileges. Those should be normal life for people. Like people shouldn't have to live in the kind of fear that when some people don't live in it, it's a privilege for them. Does that make sense? Like I, I, I disagree. I think it is uh, a privilege to not have to worry about. It's not a right. It's a privilege to not have to worry about certain things that other people have to worry about. I agree that it's a privilege. I just don't think it should be a privilege. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm not disputing the fact that I'm privileged. Uh-huh. I just think the things that are considered privilege are such basic human right. rights. Right. They shouldn't end up in the category of privilege. Okay. Like that's how I meant it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you made me clarify it. Cause I was, it's pretty important to me that that comes across accurately. Um, you know, I just, I just find it insane that there are just so many people whose lives are filled with so much, uh, such a high state of alert, you know, I mean, I live in a, no, I live in an area in a house. No one knows my streets here. You can't even find it when you're looking for it, you know, um, and, you know, I lock my house, but I probably don't have to, you know, I just do because then I don't have to think about it. But for the first year or two that I lived here, I didn't lock it. Things have gotten a little. No, well, Siri knows where you live. Siri knows where I live. And now so does everybody else because there's no privacy anymore. But so my house is locked. So don't try anything. <laughs> but, you know, but there have been times when I moved here where I would accidentally leave my garage door open all day long with thousands of dollars worth of woodworking tools and stuff in there. Like it happened on several occasions, not mm. on purpose, but uh-huh. I just drove away and didn't realize it. I came back. I mean, nothing had been touched or moved or stolen, nothing. And that's how life should be. I get that it's not. Uh-huh. But I just don't think that that should be a privilege. I think that should be the way life is. Like we should be able to live, we should be able to coexist, you know, more peacefully with each other. I know that that's very idealistic, but I really, that's the kind of world I want to live in. And that's not the reality. I get it. But um, I also have this thing, like we spend so much money protecting ourselves. And I really feel like if we reallocated those resources toward equalizing the distance between the haves and the have nots, we wouldn't need as much protection. There's always going to be a few people who are going to choose to steal. Um, just like the internet, you know, there's, there's organized crime and some of those people, it's not their only choice. Like, I mean, the, the organizers, it's not their only choice. Uh, and, but I just, I feel like imagine if we, imagine if we just agreed spontaneously as a planet to stop going to war and we just did not need a military anymore you know that would and we could take all that money and put it towards health food and education like we wouldn't know what to do with all that money we would we would have everybody on the planet even if we said you know we're gonna give money to people who you know just because they don't have a an army anymore they still don't have anything like even if we decided to feed the entire planet we we could do so much with the resources that we have if we weren't spending all this time and energy protecting ourselves and i think that you know it starts on a on a on an international level or on a on a on a country protection level with military and all that stuff but it goes all the way down to 
locking your door and having an alarm on your house or your car or whatever, or having to lock your bike up, like all these things that we have to spend resources on because we live in a world that's dramatically imbalanced. You're looking at me. I mean, people are dicks. <laughs> you're like, grow up, dude. <laughs> it's just not the way it is. It's the way I want it to be. Uh, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. But, and it's a big butt. It's yeah. the biggest butt there is. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop wanting the world to be that way. Um, and I'm not going to stop trying to interface with the world that way, you know, because that's all we can do is, is be, boy, I sound like a cliche, but we have to be in the world the way we want the world to be. And I, I kind of like the way you and I are trying to do that through humor. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's a, a great way to reach people. And it's a great way to uh, remind people of what's, what's good as opposed to what they had to be afraid of. And there you have it. What a cool conversation. David is the yin to my yang. Speaking to him was like a talking meditation. As a comedian, I was fascinated to hear about his process. As a fellow member of the tribe, I was intrigued to hear how Judaism has framed his world and the ways in which he's transcended the limitations of over-identifying with any one orthodoxy in order to fully experience life. If you like what you heard, please visit our website. Use our Amazon portal and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about us, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing no matter when it goes out of style.